All right, this afternoon, um, we're going to be um, hearing about and hopefully thinking about something that um, kind of remains in the back of our minds a little bit. It's, it's, it's um, something, I think, for a lot of people, they don't really want to think about it, but we know as Christians is a reality, and that is not just the return of Jesus Christ, but what we call the final judgment. You think about that very often? You think about that one day we're going to have to stand before what Revelation 20 calls the great white throne of judgment, and one day um, everything's going to be laid bare in our lives. You know, um, what we have done, but even more than that, um, what we have said, but even more than that, the Bible says even the thoughts and the intentions of our heart, even the motivations of our heart are going to be exposed one day and evaluated. And that's, that's, that's kind of a frightening thing if you think about it. We should take that seriously. But for the Christian, it's also going to be a time of great comfort and assurance. You say, well, why is that? Well, that's what we're going to be taking a look at as we return to our catechetical series. So what I want to do is um, read from the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 6. It'll be also on the overhead uh, above me. And then also, um, as we get back to our catechetical series, we're going to be looking at question answer 52 uh, in our catechetical series on what we call the... Final judgment, or the judgment of the living and the dead. So before we confess the catechetical statement here in just a moment, I want to read from Revelation chapter 6. I want to read the, the whole of chapter 6. And I want you to notice here how there's, there's a number of images, there are a number of symbols that you're going to be wondering, what is, what is this all about? And I'll, I'll explain it here this afternoon. And I want you to see how in chapter 6, there's a, what we call a gradual unfolding of history and God's plan for the world ultimately culminating or climaxing in the return of Jesus Christ and the events that revolve around that, okay? So Revelation chapter 6, Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a, loud, with a voice like thunder, Come. And I looked, and behold, a white horse. And its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. And when he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come. And out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth, so that people would slay one another. And he was given a great sword. When he had opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come. And I looked, and behold, a black horse. And its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard what seemed to be the voice, or a voice, in the midst of the four living creatures, saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and wine. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come. And I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and its rider's name was Death, and Hades followed him, and they were given authority over a quarter of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. 
They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked and behold, there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come. And who can stand? Notice how it ends with a, with a question mark. Who's going to... Who's going to be able to stand before the wrath and the judgment of Almighty God? And what leaves us a, a question like that is designed to make us think, you know, about what we just read, which I'm sure for a lot of us is pretty mysterious. But oftentimes I've thought, even if people who are not Christians and who open up their Bibles and they read something like this, this, is, this has got to, they, they must sense, they must sense that there is, while they do not understand everything, there's something pretty weighty and significant here, and, and, and there is. And I'll explain that uh, in just a moment. Now, before we uh, consider uh, Revelation 6, I want to draw your attention to question answer uh, 52. And I'm going to read the question, and as we commonly do, let's recite the answer together. So here's the question. What comfort is it to you that Christ will come to judge the living and the dead? And let's say together, in all my sorrow and persecution, I lift up my head and eagerly await as judge from heaven the very same person who before has submitted himself to the judgment of God for my sake and has removed all the curse from me. He will cast all his and my enemies into everlasting condemnation, but he will take me and all his chosen ones to himself into heavenly joy and glory. Which, when you consider the, the, final, the, the return of Christ and the final judgment of God, you kind of go, that's all good. I mean, right? I mean, this is, this is, in, this is encouraging what we call gospel good news for those who uh, belong to Christ. And why is that? Why, why is it that we don't have to ultimately, especially in light of the language of Revelation 6, why is it that we don't have to uh, ultimately be afraid on that day when Christ returns? And the creation experiences upheaval and we stand one day before the judgment throne of God. Why is it as Christians we don't have to fear? And the answer is because everything that naturally stands between a human being and their God is taken away. The barrier caused by what the Bible calls sin, which is a deep, deep offense to God. That barrier is taken away 
through Jesus Christ and through faith in Jesus Christ by entrusting ourselves to Christ, right? So, so if you think about it, you know, the Bible says that Christ has taken away sin, particularly the, the guilt and the power and the penalty of sin so that we then are in right standing with God. Not in bad standing, not in wrong standing, but in right standing with God. And that means everything for our comfort. Although, when you take a look at Revelation chapter 6, it's still kind of a frightening thing, isn't it? When you think about the return of Jesus Christ. I mean, when you consider everything that Revelation chapter 6 says, it's hard to believe, although we must trust that this is the case, but it's going to be hard to believe that, that our comfort in Christ and the fact that Christ is a sufficient Savior for us, putting us in right standing with God, that when everything in the creation turns topsy-turvy, when what we read in Revelation chapter 6 is this, that the sun will turn dark and the moon will turn to the color of blood, and people will be so afraid when they see stars actually falling from the sky. And they're going to be so afraid that they are going to try to hide themselves in crevices of rocks and in caves. And finally realize that they can't hide from God. And rather than face the wrath and the judgment of Almighty God, they're going to cry for the rocks of the mountains to fall upon them. We live in an area of the country where we already know what mountains are all about. A lot of us hike in those mountains. That's what we like about living in this area. You think about those mountains that you climb on, if you have the health to do that. You think, wow, some people are going to be so afraid that all those tons of rock, they're going to cry out. They just fall on them rather than they have to face Jesus. Jesus as judge. Jesus, Jesus is a deliverer, but he's also judge, right? You see these two sides of Christ. It's hard to imagine that, but we have to, especially in light of the, um, the language that we have here in Revelation chapter 6. Now, um, what I want to do is I'm going to get back to this catechetical statement in just a moment, but I want to consider with you um, Revelation chapter 6. There is a lot here, so we're going to skim over part of it, but I want to especially focus on what we call the sixth seal, where it relates to the return of, of Jesus Christ and, and, the, and the judgment. And if we're going to understand Revelation chapter 6, what we really need to do, actually, is go back to Revelation chapter 5. So if you have a Bible, go to Revelation chapter 5, verses 1 through 5, and if you could put uh, Revelation chapter 5, so one of the PowerPoints, please. Do we have that? We should have that as a PowerPoint. Okay, very good, thank you. I'm going to read it, I want you to, and I'm going to make a few comments about this. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion, the tribe 
or the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, is conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Now, like a lot of things in the book of Revelation, you kind of scratch your head like, what is that all about? Well, if you know anything about the book of Revelation, you know it's filled with a lot of images and um, a lot of symbols that just kind of beg interpretation. So, uh, kids, I want you to especially, I want you to listen up because I'm going to explain this very, very simply to you. Here in Revelation chapter 5, you have kind of what's, what, what is um, a scroll, okay? And a scroll is, is, is kind of like this, where kind of a scroll looks like this, but it's probably bigger than this, right? And it's like this, and then it has seven seals around it. Now, really, remember that this is, this is all symbols, okay? So a symbol is something that actually points to something greater than itself, right? So this scroll represents... According to Revelation 5, the, the plan of God for the history of the world and the unfolding of that history throughout certain segments, ultimately leading up to the second coming of Jesus Christ. So you have this scroll, this is the plan of God for history, but you notice that that plan is hid. Like nobody knows not only what that plan of God for the world is, but also there's no one to gradually open that scroll and not only read it, but fulfill what the scroll has to say that will actually fulfill God's plan for history. So you know that there's a scroll and it's got seven seals. And each of those seven seals, as they are taken away, start opening up more and more what God's plan for the history of the world is. But when you read Revelation chapter, seven, uh, chapter 5, what you realize is that that there is weeping going on because God has his plan for history, but there's no one who is really qualified or worthy to be able to open that scroll and unfold God's plan for history until a person is mentioned who is indeed worthy. And who is that? It's the Lion of the tribe of Judah. And who is that? That's Jesus Christ. So as Christians, oftentimes when we think of Jesus, we think of his work on the cross. We think of Jesus' work of redemption and freedom on our behalf, right? But Jesus is not only Lord of redemption, Jesus is Lord of the creation. The Bible says that the world was created in and through Jesus Christ, but Jesus Christ is also the Lord and the King of history. And he is the one who unfolds God's plan for history as we see in Revelation chapter five. All right, need to move on. When we come to Revelation chapter six then, what we see actually is each of those seven seals being unfurled, if you will, or taken away so that we can see the gradual progression of God's plan for history. Each of those seals, by the way, is, contains a certain temporal judgment that God brings upon the world. And we find those certain judgments leading up again to the second coming of Jesus Christ. So, for the sake of time, let me, let me share with you, basically, what each of those, seven, uh, those six seals are. The first seal is this. The first seal represents the conquest of nations. And this is what we see in the world, right? One nation fighting against another nation. Another nation... Um, um, assuming conquest over another nation or defeating that nation. And that's just what the history of the world is like. So the first seal represents the conquest of nations. The second seal represents slaughter of peoples. The third seal represents famine or hunger in the world. Remember, these are all temporal judgments. The fourth seal represents both famine and disease. The fifth seal represents the martyrdom of Christians. And the sixth seal finally represents the coming of Jesus Christ into this world. And all of this revolves, I'm not going to get into all the imagery, but that's basically what the seals are referring to. 
And the interesting thing is, I don't know if you're a student of history or if you enjoy history, but when you look at the world, that's exactly what you see. You have one nation ascending for a time and then is defeated by another nation. And then that nation ascends for a time and then that nation is defeated. Even when you look at the Bible, maybe you know a little bit of the history of the Bible, think of some of these strong nations. You have Egypt. But then Egypt is eventually defeated. Or you have, for instance, you have Babylon, which is then taken over, or you had Assyria. Assyria is taken over by Babylon. Babylon in time over the Medo-Persians. And then you have, what is it, Greece. Greece taken over Medo-Persia. And then you have Rome, the Roman Empire, the great Roman Empire that was supposed to last forever, right? And Rome is viewed as the eternal city, right? And then even in the 20th century, we have the rise of Nazism. You have the rise of the Soviet Union. Where are these regimes and where are these nations today? Right? right now, you have the ascendancy of, of, of the U.S. and the West and with it Canada, and we're doing really well, but one day we're not going to last forever. Who's going to be the next ascendant nation? But anyway, the point is, as you look at Revelation 6, the reason why I bring this out is this is not bogus stuff. We see, actually, this plan of history going throughout the world. We see the conquest of nations. We see war. We see the slaughter of peoples. We see famine. We see destruction. We see persecution, particularly the persecution of Christians. This goes on and on. This is, these are cycles throughout history. But here's my point. All of these things that we see in the world today famine and slaughters and war and all of that the Bible teaches us that, that as the second coming of Jesus Christ approaches, these things will intensify greatly, culminating ultimately in the return of Jesus Christ to this world as evidence in the sixth seal. Now I want to draw your attention now to some of the events that take place with the return of Jesus Christ in the sixth seal. Take a look at verse 12 if you would. Can you put the Revelation um, chapter 6, our original scripture reading? I want you to take a look at verse 12. Here I'm going to read this. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked and behold there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth, the full moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. I mean, that's, that's quite an incredible description. And, you know, commentators are kind of divided as to, regarding the whole book of Revelation, but especially this description, how much do we take this literally? Or how much do we take this figuratively? I mean, is the, soon, is the sun actually going to turn black? And is, 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 is the sun going to turn black? Or is the moon going to turn to blood and all of this? Are the stars actually going to fall from the sky? Or is this just an indication that the creation itself is just going to go through a lot of upheaval? We don't know for sure. There's a lot of things that we don't know about the book of Revelation. But all we know is this, that when Jesus Christ returns, and the reason why I want to bring this out is oftentimes we think of the return of Jesus Christ, we just think of the response of us, and we think of the response of people in the world to the return of Jesus Christ and the effect that it's going to have on the people of the world. But when you read the Bible, you realize that the return of Jesus Christ, the creation itself is going to go into upheavals, what we call the conflagration of the creation. And strange and incredible things are going to be happening in this world at the return of Jesus Christ. 
You know, the Apostle Peter, if you'll put the passage up from uh, 2 Peter, I want you to take a look at this. Peter goes into more detail about what happens at the return of Jesus Christ. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. Okay, just stop there for just a moment. You know, the Bible says that when Christ returns, nobody knows the day or hour. There are going to be certain indications in this world that are going to intensify, so we have to keep our antennas up to interpret these things. But we don't ultimately know the day or hour. Jesus is going to come like a thief in the night. But the day of the Lord will come. The day of the Lord is the, the return of Christ, and the final judgment is going to come like a thief. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done in it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. Wow. Wow. This is going to happen to our world. So when Christ returns, the creation is going to be in a state of upheaval, but ultimately of renewal. And what, what many theologians contend, especially those in what we call our Reformed camp, is this, that when Christ returns and this creation goes through this time of conflagration or great upheaval, the idea that a lot of people have in the world today is that this world as we know it, this universe as we know it, is going to be wiped off the face of the map, it's going to be completely destroyed, and God is going to begin something perfectly anew. But the idea of many, I think they're right in this, is that this is not a destruction of the creation, but it is a renewal. For instance, let me keep it simple. Sometimes um, gold, in order to be refined, has to be refined by what means? Right? By fire. And when, when gold, when people get gold out of the ground, if they want to refine it, in other words, when they want to get rid of the impurities or what is called the dross, they put it through intense fire in order to burn away that dross so what you're left with is pure gold. And that's the way it is going to be in the creation. God made this world. God loves this physical world. When he was done creating it, he said it is good. It fell, but God is now, even now, beginning to renew this world and also this. When Christ returns, this world will be not destroyed, but it is refined because the Lord says it belongs to me. And through that is the inaugurated, the new creation, the new heavens, and the new earth. But my point is, so much could be said about these kinds of things. But when you think about the return of Jesus, just don't think about us. Think about this world in which God made, okay? So while it's not, while it's not just about us, it also does include us, however, because when you take a look at verse, four, um, verse 15 and following, I want you to notice this. First, the creation itself, the physical creation, is affected by the return of Christ. But then notice verse 15. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, at the return of Christ, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? 
So not only will the physical creation experience upheaval, but people themselves will experience upheaval. And you know what? It doesn't matter who you are. If you're rich and famous, or you're just a normal Joe, if you are rich or you are poor, if you're in a position of authority and influence, or you are not, whether you are slave or free, whether you are black or white or whoever, listen, we, the, the coming of Jesus and the final judgment is the great equalizer. We're all on the same plane. We're all going to experience the return of Jesus Christ. And one day we are all, we are all going to have to stand before the throne of Christ. And there are going to be people at the return of Christ who, as we, according to this passage, isn't it, isn't it quite frightening? I mean, what, what's going to happen is that when they see him and all that, and we, there's so much that we don't know, but when they see the coming of Jesus Christ so unexpected, and involves the whole world around them. They are actually going to try to flee from him, and they're going to hide in caves and hide in crevices of rocks, and they are going to actually go so far as to cry out for the mountains to fall upon them and destroy them rather than to meet the wrath and the judgment of the Lamb of God. Now give us a little bit of a breather here. This morning I mentioned the uh, Twin Towers of New York City. And you know, when they were hit by those planes on September 11, you, I assume many of us, probably most of us, have seen videos at that time. They still post them today. And those, those, the, the buildings are on fire and they're smoking. And the people are watching, and you have videos taken of, of, of people, maybe on their phones or whatever they were doing, and, and they're, 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 they have, they have their, um, their phones, and they're videotaping that, 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 that building, and that first one begins to, to, to crumble down, you know, and they can't believe their eyes. And you can hear people in the background, what are they crying out? You know, I was just watching one this past week, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God, you know, and they're, they're, isn't it interesting that people who even are standard atheists always cry out the name of God when they run into issues like this. They can't believe it. Oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. And, 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 and you know, the worst thing about that whole thing is not even the crumbling of those buildings, but prior to that, just people hurling themselves down from, from some of those upper floors of, of, of the building rather than have to be burned alive in those buildings. And, you know, remember if you were here this morning, I said those, those buildings are 400 meters tall. Okay, 1,300 feet above the ground, and they would rather throw themselves to the ground. But once they begin crumbling, right, the people crying out, oh my God, and what do they do? They start fleeing. They're running for their lives, right? And it, it, it reminds us, you know, when you see something like that, next time you watch those videos, you think of, of the return of Jesus Christ, because sometimes what God does, now that's substantiated on the basis of what we find in Revelation 7, God brings temporal judgments to this world to remind us that the final colossal judgment is to come. And this isn't any joke. And when that comes, our passage tells us that, yeah, there's going to be some people who are going to try to flee, but they realize that, you know what? They can't flee. They cannot flee from the wrath and the judgment of God. And in the end, they're going to cry out for the mountains to fall on them rather than meet the Lord of glory. You know. But, but, what I want you, this one thing I want you to see from Revelation chapter 6 is that while people are mentioned here, the children and, and, and the people fleeing, 
and, and, and crying for the rocks to fall on them. Christians are not mentioned there. The children of God are not mentioned there among that group. It doesn't say kings of the earth and generals and powerful and everyone slave and free and so on, but it doesn't specifically mention Christians. Christians are spared. Now, in terms of the temporal judgments that God brings upon the world as he's bringing forth his plan for history, um, when it comes to that, in the midst of these temporal judgments, does that mean that, that as we f- find wars and as we find famine, as we find pestilences, that what God does is he just kind of puts a hedge around his people and say, you know what, the people of the world, the people outside of Jesus Christ, they're going to experience these things, but you won't because you're mine. That's not true. Whatever happens in this world, you and I experience it. Inflation, we experience it. Wars like in Ukraine, Christians are suffering there. Issues going on in Afghanistan, Christians are experiencing that there. Persecution, yes, we find that in the fifth seal. It talks about persecution, talks about martyrdom. And let's remember, if I can just add this one final thing. There are many, many Christians when they think of the final judgment and the justice of God coming upon the world and upon the peoples of the world and how verdicts will be rendered against those who have put Christians to death. You and I live in a very easy land of freedom. But you know, like Sariah and Ishak and, and others of the Afghanis who have been worshiping with us, you don't know half the stories that some of us who have gotten involved in their lives and with the Afghani community know about under the Taliban. These are individuals who cry out for the justice of God. Mostly they cry out for conversions, but where there are no conversions, where people will not turn to Christ, they look forward to fairness and the justice of God. Something that's really hard, I think, for, for a lot of us who live in freedom and in, in, in comfort. But at any rate, what I want us to see is that while we have brothers and sisters in Christ who are persecuted in the faith and deal with difficulties, in the end, They are spared from having to cry out for the mountains to fall on them. Why is that? Why is that? Because while some people are fleeing and crying out, when Christ returns, culminating in the final judgment and the new creation to come, while people are crying out, they're looking up. And why is that? Because it's time to go home. It's time to go home. Why do I say that? Can you put the question answer 52 of the Heidelberg up there if you can find it? I know I'm making you kind of go back and forth here. What comfort is it to you that Christ will come to judge the living and the dead? That's what I want to do with this question and answer for just a moment. It's very interesting. It didn't say, what distress will come to you when Christ comes to judge the living and the dead? It doesn't use that word. It doesn't use the word distress. This is what comfort is it to you that Christ has come to judge the living and the dead? This is a confession of Christians. This is our confession, right? And the answer is this. In all my sorrow and persecution, okay, that's just what I explained for Revelation chapter 6. God doesn't shield us from everything in these temporal judgments in the world. We participate in the difficulties of this world. So in all my sorrow and persecution, though that is my part of my existence, my experience in this world, I will lift up my head and eagerly await as judge from heaven the very same person who before has submitted himself to the judgment of God. In other words, when you express faith in Jesus Christ, the judgment that comes upon the world and others does not come upon you. Why? Because Christ is your substitute. He took the judgment that you and I deserve and he took it upon himself. And when you entrust yourself to him through repentance and faith, that judgment is taken away. 
You should have confidence and all the confidence in the world. He submitted himself to, for my sake to the judgment of God and has removed all the curse from me. He will cast all his and my enemies into everlasting condemnation. But he will take me and all his chosen ones to himself into heavenly joy and glory. That, that's our hope. And that's good news, right? So I want to I I leave, leave you with this. I want to leave you two things because I think a passage like Revelation chapter 6 and Heidelberg's treatment of the judgment to come uh, forces us, I think, to, to deal with a warning and also with assurance. The warning is this. The second coming of Jesus Christ and the final judgment of the living and the dead is no joke. And we need to take it seriously. And when you take a look at Revelation chapter 6 and you see the responses of people and when you think about how the Bible says it's a promise, it's a promise that Christ is going to come again and there's going to be that final judgment, it really forces us to ask, okay, how, how am I actually preparing for that day? How am I preparing for that day? Am I prepared for that day? A passage like this forces us to ask, what about my life? Am I genuinely repentant? Have I fully entrusted myself to Christ? Have I genuinely really died to myself in order that I might find my life in Christ? Am I really walking with him? Like the Apostle Paul says, you know, test yourself to see that you're in the faith. Make your calling and election sure. That's not meant to instill unnecessary doubt. It's just meant for us to periodically do a little bit of self-assessment. And evaluate our lives and say, how am I really walking with Christ? Is he preeminent in my life? Do I really love him? Am I serving him? So there, there's, a, there's, there's a warning of the inevitability of the return of Jesus Christ calling for self-evaluation. However, it also brings a great amount of assurance to us and a great amount of comfort. Why is that? Because we know that though the reality of Christ's coming is certain, and that there will be that final judgment where we all stand before him, where our, our deeds, our thoughts, the intentions of our heart will all be exposed and evaluated. Ultimately, we know that there's one who has stood in our place so that we might hear ultimately from the Lord, not depart from me, you who practice wickedness, but well done, good and faithful servant. Enter now into the joy of your master. Indeed, for the Christian, when Christ returns, we're not going to be like this and trying to figure out a way which we can flee. But actually, in the language of the catechism, which is the language of the gospel of Luke, we're going to look up and we're going to anticipate coming home fully to be with our Savior. We're always going to see him face to face. One more thing. Can you go to the gospel of Luke, please? I want you to take a look at this. And there will be signs in the sun and the moon and the stars and on the earth, distress of nations and perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and of the waves. People fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the world. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now, now, when these things begin to take place, straighten up. And raise your heads. Why? Because your full redemption, your full freedom, 
and enjoyment is coming to you, right? So may it be that we all anticipate that day, standing firm in Jesus Christ, standing straight, looking up, saying, Lord, it's time for the reward. Take me home. And may we all anticipate that day when together, and may every one of us be there, every one of us here, be together at the marriage feast of the Lamb, feasting with the Lord, with joy and with intimacy. And may we already now, at this point in our lives, anticipate that day to such an extent that we say, Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Come quickly. We're going to have discussion in just a moment. Before we do, let's have a prayer together. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for this time that we could have. Lord, in some ways, quite honestly, we like to just kind of skim over this whole business of the final judgment. But Lord, it's absolutely necessary. For we know that it's a reality. We know that Jesus teaches on it frequently. And we see that, that, that one day it's a reality. He will return and we will have to stand before that judgment seat of Christ. And Lord, we thank you that we may look at this not ultimately with fear, but with a great amount of comfort and a great amount of inner peace, knowing that what we do deserve with the rest of the world is taken away in Jesus Christ. And we thank you so much, O oh Lord, for that. Jesus, you mean everything to us. Thank you for your life given for ours. And thank you for your active obedience all the way to the point of death, death on a cross, so that we might be set free and we may live for you. We thank you for this, O oh Lord, and for this good news. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. Time for just a little bit of... Uh...